The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Cheryl Forberg. She is a registered dietitian, but she's also a James Beard award-winning chef and a New York Times best-selling author. In 2011, she was named as one of America's 100 most influential people in health and fitness. She received her culinary education at the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. After graduating from CCA, she embarked on a European apprenticeship journey, which culminated in stints at top French restaurants. Upon return to the U.S., Ms. Forberg was chosen for the opening team of Postrio, Wolfgang Puck's first venture in Northern California. In 2004, she was selected as the nutritionist for the NBC hit show, The Biggest Loser. And I heard her speak at the Today's Dietitian Symposium, and I found her to be so entertaining, kind, and compassionate that I wanted to have her on with me. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for having me today. Well, I'm so curious about your professional path. First, you became a chef, and you were an award-winning chef. And I'm just curious to know what led you to go from that career to also getting a degree in dietetics. Well, I did have classical training, and in France, I learned how to make incredible sauces with butter and cream and all of those good things. And I worked in a restaurant for a while, but then I decided that wasn't for me, and I became a private chef, and I started cooking at night for families who could afford to have their own chef. This was back 20 or so years ago when very few chefs knew much about nutrition, and most nutritionists and dietitians didn't know a lot about cooking. So I had to teach myself how to adapt my recipes to meet the needs of my clients. And after a while, I decided I really could go so much further with this if I understood the physiology of why my clients had to have low fat or low salt or low calorie. And so I went back to school at Berkeley to get my nutrition degree and my RD credential. Mm-hmm. And I know you were a former research dietitian at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And for someone who has just had clinical experience, I'm speaking about myself, but not the chef credential, I'm curious to know, what did you learn from your patients? Well, that experience was actually the first time that I was professionally able to integrate the skill set of nutrition and cooking because I specifically worked with a population of menopausal women who were recovering from breast cancer. Mm. And we were working on a study that decreased their fat intake. And so I was able to explain the protocol and why it might help them physically and medically, but at the same time, I was able to integrate my culinary background and show them how they could modify their cooking technique and their recipes by using lower fat. That's so interesting. I, I think 
hospital food is notorious for lacking flavor, let's just say. I think that things are changing, and especially in hospitals that have the resources to do so. I know that some of the hospitals, for example, in New York City, who are dealing with cancer patients have chefs on call to meet their patients' needs. But the truth is that most hospital food is purchased based on cost. And flavor is so critically important, and especially if you're working with a patient population where aroma can be an offensive component of the meal, it's really critical and very wonderful if you can have your own personal chef providing tips on how to eat, how to stay well-nourished, fight your disease, and yet still enjoy your food. Exactly, exactly. It's a very delicate balance. Yeah. All right, well... You went from there then to having this high-profile position as the nutritionist and chef for NBC's hit show, The Biggest Loser. For people who do not watch television or know about the program, in a nutshell, what is The Biggest Loser about? It's a reality show that helps people to get on track and lose weight in a healthy way by providing all the necessary tools incredible food and ingredients, a great kitchen, a dietitian, and chef, myself, trainers, and an environment where they are isolated from the everyday world. Even though it's a reality show, it's not realistic to think that anyone could do this at home because it's a very unique situation. And when they agree to come on the show, first they have to pass a lot of medical testing to be sure that they're capable of exercising because everybody is morbidly obese. But they also have to agree to be sequestered for up to three or four months, depending on the length of the season of the show, because somebody is eliminated every week, but the winner is there for several months, and they're not able to go to work or see their families every day. So for the people who are eliminated, are they eliminated because they're not sticking with the protocol? There are a variety of different reasons. Sometimes they are eliminated strictly because they did not lose enough weight, and that could be from any one of a number of reasons. They didn't work out hard enough, they weren't sticking to the eating plan, or they simply reached a plateau that week, and the weight loss wasn't reflected on the scale the way it was for their competitors. And then sometimes... Every once in a while, somebody will be voted off just because they're not compatible with everybody else. So it's a different story, a different scenario every week. Mm-hmm. Keeps it interesting. Oh, I'm sure. And I want to talk to you about some of the people that you've worked with on the program. Specifically, I want to know about their biggest challenges. On the show? In real life, even yeah. though it's a reality okay. show. Yeah, and that's an excellent point because I think the biggest challenge is when they come home mm-hmm. and see how different life is when they're trying to stick to this. There aren't typically as many temptations on the ranch unless there's a challenge, which they film sometimes, sort of a gameplay. But most of the time, there are nothing but really incredible, high-quality ingredients. So. It's hard to make a bad decision. It's nearly impossible on most days on the ranch. Whereas when you're home, if you have kids, you might need to keep different 
treats or snacks in the cupboard for them that you know aren't good for you. So, so there's a temptation or you come home and you have to rejoin the workforce and your coworkers are bringing donuts in in the morning or pizza in for lunch. And that is reality for most of us. And it's tough. It's really tough. Mm-hmm. And of the people who come on the program, is there a follow-up after they leave? Yes. There are a lot of things that you don't see on the show because there's a limited time. But first of all, when somebody is eliminated at the beginning of the season, of the first or second week, it's not as though they have no contact with us again. In fact, we have weekly conference calls with all of the eliminees to be sure that they're staying on track and give them the support that they need. And that starts right away and continues until the end of the season. And sometimes it goes beyond. For example, the show that ended, the season that ended last year, we've had a monthly conference call with the cast of that show just to be there, give them support, and try to keep them on track. And additionally, all of the former contestants are always invited to attend the finales, which is kind of something that keeps them accountable because they they want to be in shape and fit when they come back and see us and see all their old colleagues, and it's it's a wonderful social time for them. But since season one, every contestant has been given our cell phone numbers, and um, I've never changed mine. And uh, and I've had no regrets about that because it's really nice for me as well to hear from everybody and see how they're doing over the years. I'm going to ask that tough question because I, I know what the data looks like in terms of what happens to people after they lose weight. I think the majority of people end up regaining the weight. What is the percentage? Yes. Have you seen that with your population too? I don't know what the latest, the last I heard a couple of years ago, the recidivism rate was about 50%. Mm-hmm. And I really don't know what it is as of this date. But I do know that the people that tend to keep the weight off really have to make a lot of lifestyle changes. Sometimes they have to change their roommate or their job, um, their living situation in order to ensure that they have the support they need to live a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And there have been a lot of changes that come along with that. But I think that's one of the most important things is just really learning how to walk the talk and, and stay on that path. Yeah. I remember when you spoke at the Today's Dietitian Symposium, you had gone through some of the many challenges that people face, at, and you mentioned some of those earlier, but there's the cost of healthier food, there's the work environment, there may or may not be a supportive spouse or friends, lots of opportunities for sabotage. And is there a psychologist also on the team that helps the contestants work through some of those barriers or challenges? Oh, that's a great question, Melinda. Yes, there is. And and because of privacy and a number of other reasons, that element is not shown on television. But everybody in the, in the very beginning, all of the contestants, when they come in for their comprehensive physicals at the beginning of the season, they meet with me, the medical doctor, Dr. H., 
And then we also have a fantastic psychologist, Dr. Hogan, who meets with everyone in the beginning. And he has groups and private sessions with everyone throughout the season and is accessible if anybody needs him or wants to talk to him. And I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I personally have learned over 17 seasons of the show how important the psychological aspect is. And a lot of people don't think about it. I'm continually asked, well, you're a dietitian. What do you think is the most important part? of this process? Is it the food or is it the exercise? And I've learned that really neither of those is the most important. I I think the psychological aspect is the most important because you don't become morbidly obese by having an extra serving of potato chips every day. You become morbidly obese unless there's a physical or, or a strong genetic component. It has a great deal to do with emotional eating. Mm. And you need to examine what is it that's causing you to medicate with food to relieve your stresses or whatever the problems are and learn to choose a different way of dealing with your stresses than eating because if that's not acknowledged and corrected, then the weight will come back, and that's for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know that you have written two books. I want to take one break and remind our listeners that if they are just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Ms. Cheryl Forberg. She is a registered dietitian, but uniquely, she is also a James Beard award-winning chef, a New York Times best-selling author, and in 2004, she was selected as the nutritionist and chef for the NBC hit show, The Biggest Loser. I want to talk about the books that you've written. You have written many, including the James Beard Award-winning New Mayo Clinic Cookbook. You have a book titled Flavor First, Cut Calories and Boost Flavor with 75 Delicious All-Natural Recipes. And your latest book is called... A Small Guide to Losing Big. A Small Guide to Losing Big, and I'm assuming that that information comes directly from your work on The Biggest Loser. Exactly. It's basically the cliff notes of what I've been teaching everyone for 17 seasons, and I've learned that it's really important to make the information short and sweet and memorable, so I've really simplified everything along with grocery lists, two weeks of menus and recipes to show everybody how to implement this at home because one of the most important things I think I've learned from the contestants is that they really value having an explanation and some education along with the food recommendations. It's not enough to say, eat this, don't eat that. Mm -hmm. But if you tell people, for example, you need to have protein with every meal and snack because we're exercising, we need to feed our muscles, adding protein increases your satiety, and it helps to keep your blood sugar level. Um, If you explain that, people will remember why they need to eat protein with every meal and every snack, and they'll do it. And I've heard that time and time again, that the education 
and the explanations that come along with the food recommendations are what makes it stick. And the other thing I really want to point out is that this isn't a diet. Diets are temporary. Diets are temporary. This is a lifestyle change, and that's the only way that it will be lasting. Exactly. If you look at it that way. I couldn't agree more. I think it's just kindness to tell a person why we're asking them to make a change. And I think it's also important for people to understand that in the nutritional science world, our recommendations do change. They are influenced, unfortunately, by political and industrial emphases. And I I remember when I was just reading that Frederick Stare, the famous nutritionist at Harvard, which I think were probably in the same category of age, perhaps you remember that he was really looked upon as being the expert in nutrition. And then we find out later that even his advice to us was influenced by different industries. And I was so, I was shattered to learn that. But we have to understand the science of why we make the recommendations, but also understand that that science might be influenced and the science changes sometimes. And I love your website. It's www.cherylforbergrd.com, and I'll provide that link to our listeners. But I love it because you have questions there that clearly you've received from people. And I want to bring one of the questions up because it's a very popular question right now, and that is, what kinds of fats and oils do we recommend? This has been so big in the press. We hear that butter is back, and then we hear maybe a session at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that says, no, no, we just need polyunsaturated fats. And we just have so much conflicting information. So one of the writers wrote to you and said, oh, I've heard all of this wonderful news about coconut oil. And you replied in a great way. Tell me what you said. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but I probably said that I am not all on board with that. Exactly. A lot of people don't understand that it is a saturated fat, which means, and I always teach my clients, and you've probably done this as well, starts with an S, saturated means it's solid at room temperature, which in the case of animal fats means it has cholesterol, but there are two vegetable fats, coconut and palm, that are saturated at, at room temperature, and these are not desirable to eat in large amounts. I think a small amount is fine, but I'm not on the on the big coconut fat bandwagon. Yeah, it's kind of strange how that happened. But what you did do is you recommended or you said it's it's more preferable to use on a regular basis. You mentioned olive oil, which we've all heard is part of that Mediterranean diet plan, which is extremely health protecting. And then you also recommended grapeseed oil, and I wondered if you could explain your thinking on that. Sure. Well, the first thing to say about that is that I live in Napa, and grapeseeds are in abundance. They are not all of the wineries, but some of the wineries preserve the grapeseeds and pass them off to a producer located in Napa, and they produce an oil, uh, a cooking oil, from the grape seeds, so it's a very efficient use of most parts of the plant in addition to the fact that we all know that grapes and the grape skins are loaded with antioxidants, which have wonderful health benefits, but the grape seeds are too. And so an oil is made from the pressed 
seeds, and they're actually making flour as well. Wow. I haven't tried cooking with it yet, but it's a very healthful product. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, how about a smoke point on that? Can it tolerate fairly high heat? Yes, yes. It's, that's one of the reasons I really like it is that it has a very high smoke point, higher than olive oil. And the other thing is that it has a very neutral flavor profile, more so than olive oil, so that it doesn't compete with any delicate flavors or herbs that you might be using in your cooking. So I really, really enjoy using grapeseed oil. And, and the prices come down. Uh-huh. That's interesting. All right. I think many of our listeners, including myself, would probably like to focus on one of the chapters that you have. I want to focus on two points that you make here. The first is the effectiveness of food journaling. You've got a chapter dedicated to it, and you say that it is critical to weight loss success. Why is that? What have you found with the contestants on the program? Has it been an aha moment for them to see just how much they really are eating? Yes, and certainly most of the contestants on the show, as well as my own clients, have tried so many different weight loss plans and without success for the most part. But because of their experience, most of them have tried an eating plan where they have had to journal their food. And it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt, but it's so much easier than it was 10 or so years ago because there are a lot of great applications online that make it easy and they're free. And in the beginning, yes, it's a pain in the butt because you have to write down every single thing and you have to measure and you have to weigh. But after a while, most of us are creatures of habit. We'll have the same breakfast, you know, three or four days a week. And if we're in a hurry, we probably repeat our other meals as well. So it becomes a lot easier to enter as time moves on. And the other thing I really like about it is that those food journals can become menu plans and shopping lists as um, you accrue weeks and then months of these journals and you can mark them as favorite menu for your family or however you like to do it and and use them as grocery lists and menus. But, But the other thing that I like to remind people is that you don't have to go crazy and stop after every meal and write it down. I think almost everybody now has a cell phone with a camera. And so if you're in a hurry, just take out that camera. Every time you have something to eat or drink, and uh, take a picture and then sit down at the end of the day and do your journal. And then you won't forget anything. That is a great idea. Now, you mentioned that there were apps online. Do you have a favorite app or two that you might want to mention in case somebody wants to get started doing this? Sure. I happen to really like MyFitnessPal.com. It's very easy to use, and the contestants on the show or my personal clients, I insist that they all sign on and make an account, and then there's a way that they can make me their friend, and then I can log in from my computer wherever I am or my phone, and I can look at their food journals while we're having a consult, and I can zero in on something that they might need to correct. So I, I really enjoy that application, and it has a large database. And if there's a product that you're using or an ingredient or a recipe that you can't find in their database, there's a very simple way to add it yourself. Well, that's great. All right. 
The other chapter I wanted to talk about in the few minutes that we have remaining is the chapter on emotional eating because we both recognize that, yes, diet and exercise are important, but how we think about food and ourselves is truly critical. What do you tell clients who struggle with emotional eating? And I think most of us know when we are dealing with emotional problems that lead us to eat, but what would you want our listeners to know about that? I would love for people to know to not feel isolated about it and feel like they're the only one that is doing this. They're the only one is emotional eating. They're the only one that's having a binge. Everybody, not everybody binges eats, but everybody emotional eats, in my opinion. Whether we're tired, we're stressed, we're happy, a lot of us reach for food for comfort and, and other reasons. And I think it's okay to do that now and then, but when you take it to an extreme and you are literally using food to numb your feelings, you had a stressful day at work, or you just don't want to think about you're having problems with your spouse, you don't want to think about it, so you plop down in front of the television with, you know, a pint or more of ice cream and you're not even enjoying it. You're doing it to numb your feelings and take your mind off of other issues that's when you need to be concerned. And in the book, I give a variety of different tips and kind of a mini quiz to zero in on that. And then resources, if people do have problems with that, the first thing that you need to do is is share that with somebody. And because most of the time when we keep problems like that to ourselves, they turn into something much bigger than they really are, and they can become paralyzing, actually. So it's a really good step to be enlightened and acknowledge it if that's something that you're doing. And I love to share resources with people to help them find their way back. Mm -hmm. Are there any lessons that you've learned from the individuals that you've counseled on the show that you want to share with us? Well, one thing that I've learned in the very beginning was that skipping meals does not promote weight loss. It promotes weight gain. I was really surprised in the beginning to learn how much weight somebody could gain skipping one or two meals a day and how it just wreaks havoc on your blood sugars and your body's hunger cues. So that's one thing I'd really like to point out. It's really, really important to not skip meals. Hmm. And I think the other thing is I like to tell people at home that Start with baby steps. People are inspired by the show, but then they're also overwhelmed because they're trying so hard at home by themselves to do this, make changes, and they compare themselves to people on the show or to other people in general, and they get disappointed or frustrated if they're not having the same results, and then they fall off the wagon. And I just like to remind people that, you know, start with baby steps. Start with one thing, whether it's exercising more or cutting out soft drinks or cutting out the white stuff, white flour, white rice, white sugar, start with one thing at a time. And then when you have a comfort level with that, then move on to the next step. That's a great piece of advice to close the program with. And I want to thank you so much. We've been speaking with Cheryl Forberg. She is a fellow registered dietitian, but she is also a James Beard award-winning chef and a New York Times bestselling author. We have been focusing on her latest book titled A Small Guide to Losing Big, based on her 17 
episode series of working as the nutritionist and chef for the NBC hit show, The Biggest Loser. You can go online and learn more about her work at www.cherylforberg.com. In closing, I want to thank my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again so much, Cheryl, for being here and sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me, Melinda.